All right, everybody. Good to see you guys this morning. Uh, so youth group, you guys are ready. I can see it. Youth group, you guys are dismissed. So middle school and uh, high school. And then as well, uh, elementary school. So preschool through fifth grade. We've got uh, something for everybody uh, this morning. And uh, what a blessing, Pastor Chris. Thanks for sharing all of that with us. And we've just been privileged as a church body to get to walk with them through this and to pray. You know, I was thinking this morning as I was praying for them and for this precious little girl, um, you know, we may be the only people who have ever prayed for her and who will continue to do that. So um, even after she's gone and back with her family, we want to continue to keep her in prayer. And uh, as Pastor Chris said, she's the sweetest little, um, just a good-natured um, little baby. So um, give her a hug on the way out this morning. We're going to certainly pray for them as we get started today. Um, I did want to just uh, echo, if you are interested, I mean, if you've never been baptized, um, why wait, right? Today is a great day to be baptized. It's not raining, right? You're going to get wet anyway. And uh, you don't have to have a white robe. We don't do the white robe thing. So you can wear whatever you're wearing. And if you've never been baptized, and if you feel like you're ready, that you want to make kind of that public profession, baptism doesn't save us. And yet it is a declaration to the world that we're saved. We're saying, you know, I've made this decision for Christ to follow after him. And now I'm identifying with him in his death, burial, and resurrection and I'm doing that publicly. So if you're interested in doing that today, it's certainly not too late. We have two people scheduled to do it, and we would gladly do 20 people if there's 20 people that want to do it. And um, the good news is you don't have to hang around after service to support them because it's actually going to be part of our service. So um, when we're done with, uh, with the teaching today, instead of closing with a final song in here, we're all going to just head straight out the door and close in our final song out there as we do uh, the baptisms. So anyway, it's a, a wonderful thing that we look forward to doing two or three times a year here and uh, awfully excited that today is the day. So uh, we're going to be in Mark 14 this morning, continuing on in that chapter. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles that you can use so if you want to raise your hand, uh, one of the guys will bring you a Bible. You're welcome to use a Bible that's on your phone, whatever's, uh, whatever's easiest for you. So let's go ahead and pray and just ask that the Lord would continue to bless our time together and specifically uh, just bless our time in his word today. So Father, we are so thankful for uh, this church body, Lord. We're thankful for this place that you have provided, Lord, in this time that you have set aside each week for us to come together, Lord, and to, um, to fellowship with one another, Lord, and most importantly, to be in fellowship with you as we worship you, Lord. We worship you through our singing, Lord. We worship you through our obedience and our attention, Lord, to your word, Lord. And we, we do pray even now that you would bless that time Lord, as we go to your word, Lord, we pray that your spirit would be our teacher, Lord, and that you would um, just reveal your heart more and more to us, Lord, as your church. We do pray as well, Lord, for Pastor Chris and for Heather and for this beautiful baby, Lord, as they um, prepare, Lord, to, um, to give her over, Lord, to the family tomorrow, Lord. We pray that you would be with them and comfort them in ways that uh, are supernatural, Lord, ways uh, that they'll recognize that it's only you that could be providing the kind of comfort that they're 
receiving, Lord. And we do pray for this precious girl, Lord, that you would continue to be with her and, Lord, that you would use even this difficult experience in the life of, of her and her family, um, Lord, just to do a wonderful and a miraculous work. And so, Lord, we pray all of these things. Lord, we ask your blessing. Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. I knew there was one other thing I didn't mention, and I'm going to mention it real quick. Next week, Pastor Bill Holdridge. So if you've never heard Pastor Bill teach, uh, you are in for a treat. Um, he, Pastor Bill is one of uh, my pastors. I served under him for uh, a handful of years over at the church in Santa Cruz. Uh, and as, uh, as Chris shared, uh, Pastor Bill has decades and decades and decades of experience um, in the local church, and now his whole ministry is ministering to local churches. So I think he's going to bring us kind of a, a, a breadth of insight um, and just, a, a, just again, a depth of, uh, he has a heart for the Lord like few men that I know. So I would really encourage you to be here next week um, for that. So this morning, you've got me. So continuing this morning, we're in the final chapters now of Mark's gospel, and we are literally in the final hours of the life of Jesus, right? We're going to be in Mark 14. We're going to be looking at verses 42 through 52. And as we join in this morning, it's now very early on that Friday morning, uh, the very day that Jesus will be crucified on the cross to pay the price for our sins. And we were looking together last week at the beginning of Mark's account of the agony of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we talked about, remember, this is as the, the reality, really this crushing reality of the cost of him becoming sin for us, that reality just began to weigh so heavy on Jesus. And we saw him really kind of shrink back momentarily in his humanity from this horror that he anticipated, but then we watched as he allowed himself to be strengthened in his spirit for this task that was ahead. And there were so many, I think, powerful lessons from Gethsemane that we learned from the example of Jesus, right? First from the disciples, we learned to take no confidence in the flesh, and then Jesus showed us to invite others to stand with us and to be strengthened in the spirit and submitted to the will of God and trusting in the plan of God and having faith in the word of God and then finally just to, to be in wonder, if you will, at the love of God. And so this morning as we move on toward the cross, we're going to finish up with this section. We're going to see both the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus. And I think that as we do, I think we're going to see that there's so much more, really, that we can learn here in the garden. So last week, we had lessons from Gethsemane, and so this week, we're going to see more lessons from Gethsemane. And I know you all wonder, how in the world do we come up with these clever, clever titles? I was up most of the night coming up with that one, but I really feel like the Lord really gave that there, so... You remember we left off, Jesus had just finished, remember he found the disciples asleep for yet a third time, right? Instead of watching with him and instead of praying for him the way that he had asked of them. And he says in verse 41 of Mark 14, he says, it is enough, right? Nap time is over, boys. 
right? It's enough. And then in verse 42, he says, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Verse 43 says, and immediately, right? So here is that favorite word of Mark's, right? Kind of propelling us forward into the action of what's coming. It says, immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. So very likely, just entering here into this walled garden comes this mob, right? And it's a big one. Mark even says that it's a great multitude. And John, in his account, gives us even a little bit more detail. He says that there was a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees come with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now, a detachment of Roman troops we know was 600 men. And this group was probably a mixed group, both Roman soldiers, right, carrying these little hand swords, as well as a group of these temple police, right, the officers from the chief priests, as, as John calls them, and they usually carried clubs. At this time, the Jewish religious leaders, under the approval of Rome, they were allowed to maintain kind of their own religious military kind of police force, mainly to police all of the area there around the Temple Mount, and yet here they are, now with the support of this detachment of Roman soldiers, and no doubt there was probably a, a mob that had attached itself to them as they were on their way to the garden, and they're all dispatched here now. They come with the authority directly from the house of Caiaphas, right? Authority from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Here they are, they're heavily armed, all of these men just to arrest this one man, Jesus, and all led here by this one man, Judas. Now, as we look at the scene together this morning, we want to focus on Jesus, and yet we can't help but at least take a few moments to consider Judas. And this passage is the final time that Mark will mention him at all in this account here of his betrayal. And as Mark does under the inspiration here of the Spirit, again, notice he uses that kind of really, it's a, it's a damning kind of a phrase. Mark makes note again that Judas was one of the 12. Because when we think of this man Judas and we think about this awful betrayal of Jesus, we can't help but think about all of the privilege that he had as one of the 12, one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. Judas was one of only 12 men in human history that Jesus chose to come and to be with him and to live in this intimate relationship to him. And you think about the fact that he spent three and a half years with Jesus, day and night, right? Judas and the other 11 disciples. I mean, he enjoyed and access to Jesus and an intimacy with Jesus, just even in that physical sense of being with him, that only 12 people would ever experience in the history of the world. Right? He saw all of the miracles of Jesus with his own two eyes. Right? All of these things that we read about in the Gospels, he saw happen with his own eyes. Right? All of the teachings of Jesus, he heard with his own 
ears, right? Jesus has poured his time and his teaching and his resources and his love. He's poured his very life into this man for three and a half years. Imagine Jesus, right, sharing the deepest things of his heart and of his spirit with this man, right? Judas had been a witness, really, to the perfection of Jesus for three and a half years in a way that only 11 other men in history have been. And because of this, we recognize here that Judas is sinning against such incredible privilege and really against just indescribable light. And so he becomes for us a warning on so many levels. And we talked about some of those before, but I, I think not the least of which is that sometimes, you know, sometimes we can say, Lord, you know, if I could just see a miracle, you know, then I would be so strong. You know, if, if I could just witness, if I could have if I could have heard you say that, if you just speak to me, you know, audibly, if I could have seen you calm the storm or heal the sick or whatever it is, if I could have just seen those things, then I would be a serious Christian. And yet Judas, what? He did see all those things. Judas saw lepers cleansed. He saw the dead raised. He saw the, the demoniac calmed. He saw Lazarus come, you know, hopping out of the empty tomb. Judas saw all of those things, and yet it didn't make an impression upon him. And along those lines, we think about the children of Israel, right? All the miracles that they saw just coming out of Egypt. We think about the plagues and we think about the Passover. We think about them walking through the Red Sea. And the Bible says that there was a wall of water on one side and a wall of water on the other side as they walked through on dry land. And you would think that that would have made a lasting impression. And yet how quickly right after that, they're out there making this golden calf. But we think, again, if I could just see something miraculous. And, of course, sometimes God does allow those things to happen in our lives. And they become a real touch point for us, you know, a, a point of remembrance. And yet the point is that what changes a human life is the word of God and not simply experiences from God. All that those things do is really affect our memory. They, they can affect our mind. But the word of God, what it does is it goes deep into our heart if we, if we let it. Right? It's like it says in Isaiah, it's precept upon precept and line upon line and here a little, there a little. Right, As, as the word of God is just sown into the human part, really down into that deepest part of our being. Like it says in the Hebrews that it's living and it's powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow and it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of our heart if we allow that to happen. If we allow it to penetrate us and to search us and to really perform that perfect work in us. So the very first, I think, of our more lessons from Gethsemane is that we need to keep our hearts open to the word of God because this is what Judas simply refused to do. Because I think we talked about this when we looked at him before, but at some point, I believe that Judas had become disillusioned with Jesus. 
And I think as we look at the life of Judas and we try to get at the heart of what was really the issue of his heart, ultimately it was his disappointment with Jesus and, and a sense of disillusionment about Jesus. That's what prompted him to close his heart off to hearing the words of Jesus. And to really start instead to kind of entertain this betrayal mentality. You know, I think that when Judas probably first started following Jesus, how excited was he about the prospect of this new kingdom being set up on earth? And yet then all of a sudden, you know, Jesus starts leaving the area every time the multitudes try to make him king. He starts telling people, don't tell anyone that I had healed them. And you have to think that, you know, at these points, Judas's heart is starting to sink. You know, things weren't working out for him the way that he thought that they would or the way that he believed that they should. And his heart simply started to close off. And then in due time, he sold out. Right? He sold out Jesus, we saw, you know, for, for 30 lousy, filthy pieces of silver. Right? It was that price that the Old Testament demanded was to be given to the owner of a slave who was gored by his neighbor's ox. So that's the value after three and a half years that Judas placed upon the Son of God because sometime long before that, he had closed off his heart to the Word of God. And the Word of God, I think, had been crowded out by this disappointment and this disillusionment. So we've got to guard our hearts against the same thing. Because there can so easily be this tendency in people today kind of to sell out when they get disappointed in Jesus. You know, somebody comes to faith in the Lord and they say, you know, I, I thought that Jesus was supposed to bless my life financially and relationally and emotionally and, and whatever if I became a Christian. And here I became a Christian and what happened? Well, I'm still broke and I'm still alone and I'm still depressed and I'm anxious and I'm discouraged, so it must not be working. And if we're not careful, that same kind of Judas mentality can start to creep in. We close off and then we sell out. So important that when we start to hear the enemy whisper those kinds of lies, we can be reminded, according to the word of God, of the great cost that Jesus placed on us and what he paid for us. It was far more than just 30 pieces of silver, right? It was his very life, the life of a king. So here comes Judas, right? He's got this huge mob of people, and he is set to betray Jesus right into their hands. And now Mark tells us this. Look at verse 44. It says that now his betrayer, so Judas, had given them a signal saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. Or a, a better translation is probably lead him away under guard. Keep him secure. Again, Judas knew full well the power that Jesus had. He knew that Jesus could easily escape. What he didn't know, as we said, he didn't know the heart of Jesus. He didn't know the mind of Jesus. He didn't know the true mission of Jesus, that he had come, what? To, to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
So he had gone, remember, he'd gone to the religious leaders. And just imagine being part of this little meeting, right, between Judas and these wicked men. And here's, they had kind of prearranged this sign that he had given them so that the soldiers would know exactly who the right guy was to arrest. Of course, the chief priests and the high priests and the Pharisees, they knew precisely who Jesus was. Right? They could pick him out of a crowd under any circumstance, but not this mixed multitude mob, right? especially since it was dark. It's probably 4 a.m. at this point. It's in the, the pre-dawn hours. The sun was just getting ready to come up. And so he says, look, I'm going to make this easy for you so you don't arrest the wrong person. I'm going to go directly to Jesus. And the one that I kiss, you're going to know that he's the one. Now, it sounds like a strange sign, except that this would have made perfect sense because in that day, it was very customary for a disciple to kiss their teacher simply as a sign of love and of respect. And yet here, of course, is Judas using this kiss as a weapon and not as a sign of affection. This kiss, of course, is seen as one of the most despicable acts in human history, right? Betrayed with a kiss, as we read in verse 45. It says, as soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Now, what is super interesting here, and I think so important, is to consider that, you know, I think that this infamous kiss of Judas actually betrayed more than Jesus. I think what this kiss actually betrayed, it betrayed the heart of Judas as well. And here's why I say that. Because there are actually two different words that are used here for the word kiss in these two separate verses. In that first verse, in verse 44, where it talks about this prearranged sign, kind of the usual word for kiss is used. And then yet, when we get down in verse 45... When Judas actually kisses Jesus, it's a much, much stronger word that's used. It's a word that expresses this repeated or this very kind of demonstrative kissing, kind of smothering someone with kisses over and over again. And the sense that I get is that there's a sense here of deep emotion that's being expressed by Judas in this kiss. Because I believe here that his tragically tormented soul is still struggling with itself. That he's just vexed by his own double-mindedness about his relationship with and his deep down love for Jesus. And you know, the truth is that the worst betrayals aren't the ones that happen from somebody that we don't know. Right? Somebody on the other side of the world or on the other side of town. The worst betrayals are when we're betrayed by someone who we have poured our life into. Right? Someone who we have cared deeply about. Someone whom we love and who may even or at least once loved us and then they turn and they betray us. This is the ultimate betrayal and that's precisely what we're witnessing here. Which I think just makes how Jesus responds next, just that much more amazing. Because here, even in the face of this awful act, he says something so incredible to Judas, 
so telling. Matthew's the one who records it in his account. But Jesus says at this point to Judas, it says that Jesus said to him, friend, why have you come? So even at the moment of his betrayal, here this, the way that Jesus responds to Judas, it reminds us, and I think it was meant to remind Judas, that Jesus still loved him. Right? So more lessons from Gethsemane, right? We need to keep our hearts open to the word of God and we need to receive the love of the Son of God. And you may be here this morning and whatever is going on with you, you may think you've gone too far. You may think you've done too much. You may think that Jesus is done with you. Well, he's not. He loves you. He wasn't done with Judas and he's not done with us. And even here, in this moment, Jesus is giving Judas the opportunity to turn away and to change his mind and to repent of this sin, right? Just like it talks about in 1 Corinthians 10, that you know every situation that there's a temptation, God always provides a way out. And I think here, Jesus is giving Judas a way out. One final opportunity to repent and to accept him and to receive that forgiveness and that love from him. And we can only imagine how this question came with this scalding sense of conviction for, for Judas. And we can only wonder at what was happening at that moment in his heart. And yet we get the sense that the events now were just moving too fast. Because now we, uh, you know, I at least, I kind of imagine the arresting religious guards probably pushed Judas right out of the way, right out of the rest of Mark's record entirely. And instead, what it says in verse 46 is that then they laid their hands on him and took him. Only because he allowed them to. No one took Jesus by force. Even a multitude of Roman soldiers and temple police. Jesus was voluntarily laying down his life for the sake of those he loved. And it's here at this moment that John, I think, really amplifies this reality. He records for us this beautiful detail. And Jesus says this at this moment. He says, look, if you seek me, let these go their way that the saying might be fulfilled, uh, which he spoke, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. So this is the good shepherd laying down his life for his sheep. Jesus was not arrested at all. He willingly, peacefully, voluntarily gave himself up here in the garden so that his followers could go free. And this wonderful truth, I think, of the way that he protects the disciples here becomes this beautiful picture of his substitutionary death on the cross for each and every one of us, right? He died not only for them, but he died instead of them, right? He says, look, you take me, you let them go. And he, he says it because it, that same sacrificial love which would take him to the cross, in taking the judgment for our sin, it's Jesus effectively saying the same thing to the Father, saying, look, you take me, let Bill go. 
you take me, let all the rest of them go. And what an incredible statement to consider when we consider, you know, that the one who bore all of the guilt had no guilt of his own, right? That he made him who had known no sin to become sin for us, that we would become the righteousness of God in him. So this was the Father's perfect plan. This was his will. Jesus was willingly submitting to it because, again, we, we saw, we said last week, he was submitted to the will of God because he was at peace with the plan of God. And what we see, unfortunately, next is that not everybody there in the group had that same sense of peace because look what it says in verse 47. It says that one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, neither Mark nor Matthew nor Luke tell us who, but we know from John 18 that this unnamed swordsman was none other than Peter. Right now, Mark doesn't mention Peter by name, some have suggested, and I think probably rightly, probably simply to protect his identity from the authorities at the early time that Mark wrote his gospel. Remember, Mark's gospel was probably the first of the gospel accounts, probably written as early as A.D. 55. And yet John, who wrote years later, maybe even as late as A.D. 90, so John wrote after the destruction of Jerusalem, right? There was no more temple police at that point, right? The Romans were, didn't care at that, right? So by that point, John has no problem at all telling us that it was Peter who pulled out the sword and cut off the right ear of a man named Malchus, who was the servant of the high priest. So here's our good friend Peter, right? Asleep and resting when he should have been, alert and watching and praying, and now here, when he should have been calm and restful, right, at peace here, kind of resting in the sovereignty of God, instead Peter's agitated and he's active and he is lopping off people's ears. And we absolutely, you know, Peter gets points for zeal, and yet we can see that it was totally misdirected because it wasn't based on understanding, right? It wasn't based on knowledge, right? It says in Proverbs that even zeal is not good without knowledge, and the one who acts hastily sins. So why did Peter not understand what was happening? Why didn't he see clearly what was really going on, that it was going according to plan? Well, because if there's one thing we could say about Peter is that usually instead of listening, he was talking, and instead of praying, he was napping, just like us. Amen? We saw in our text last time that just moments before this, Peter was asleep. So imagine being woken up from sleep by the clamor of this mixed mob multitude with torches and swords and clubs. All of a sudden, Peter wakes up, you know, half asleep, sees this battle, whips out his sword and starts swinging it wildly, right? almost like a reflex action, right? It was nothing more than the activity and the efforts of the flesh. All of a sudden, Peter the fisherman tries to be Peter the warrior, but he's trying to win a spiritual victory with a carnal weapon. 
And it's such an important truth for us that in the kingdom, victories never come by carnal efforts. They never come by just the brute strength or the brute force of our fleshly work. Right? They, they, they never resort to, we can't use fleshly force in a spiritual fight. It's just to invite disaster. So, more lessons from Gethsemane. We need to bring spiritual weapons to a spiritual battle. Right? What does Paul say? Paul says that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. He says that they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds and casting down arguments, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. So those mighty, powerful spiritual weapons, what are they? Well, they're prayer, the word of God, and the power of a spirit-filled life. And without them, we end up just like Peter. Here, Peter, with one sword, he's willing to take on this army of men, this mob multitude of Roman soldiers and temple police. He was willing to do that, and yet just minutes ago, he couldn't pray with Jesus for one hour. And yet the truth is that prayer is the very best work it's the most important work that we can ever do, and yet, it's also the most difficult work that we can do. I love that old expression. I think it's so fitting. It says that you can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you can't do more than pray until you've prayed, right? Because it's in prayer where we find out what it is that the Lord would have us to do. And unless we know what that is, we won't actually make any progress and we might actually just make things worse. Peter, with all of his swinging, accomplished actually very little and he actually hurt more than he helped. All he did was cut off one single ear. He just made a big mess. Luke tells us in his account that then Jesus had to clean up the mess by healing this wounded man. And, and isn't that what Jesus so graciously does so often for us? Right? He replaces and he restores the lopped off ears that we sometimes leave in our wake when we rush into a situation and try to help out. Right, where well-meaning but sometimes ignorant believers, we start taking up the sword and just swinging the sword of the word of God wildly. Or we try to rush in and play the Holy Spirit in somebody else's life. And we rush in because we're trying to help God, but what do we do? We hurt people in the process. And like Peter, all we do is cause pain and we cause hurt when our zeal for the Lord gets out ahead of our understanding of what the Lord is trying to accomplish. And that only happens as we listen to the Lord and spend time with him in prayer. So another one of our more lessons from Gethsemane is pray first, swing later, right? We gotta pray first and swing later or we actually will unnecessarily hurt people. You know, when we just indiscriminately start letting the scriptures fly like machine gun bullets, saying, well, Lord, you know, nobody else would speak up, so I'm, I'm going to do it. You can count on me, Lord. I'm going to defend you. And we just start using the Bible like a weapon. All of a sudden, all we do is make a mess that he has to clean up. 
as he ministers to the hurt and the pain that we have inflicted in someone's heart. And I think it's interesting as we see here and what Jesus does to heal Malchus, think about this, not only is he doing it to minister to the one that we've cut up, but so often he does that to protect us as well because if Jesus hadn't miraculously healed the ear of the servant of the high priest, you can bet there would have been a fourth cross up there on Calvary that day because Peter absolutely would have been crucified for what he did here. And I think it's so fitting that it's worth noticing that the very last recorded miracle of Jesus before the cross was to heal the wound that was inflicted by one of his own followers who was flailing a sword inappropriately and indiscriminately. Peter is such a prime example for us, as Peter always is, right? Because when Peter here moved in the power of the world, all he could do was cut off ears. And then we get to the book of Acts, right? And then we see now when Peter's filled with the Spirit of God, and we see him preaching the word of God, preaching in the power of God. Well, instead of just cutting off ears, now Peter's really piercing hearts. And people are getting saved by the thousands. And the fact is, Jesus doesn't need our fleshly efforts to defend him or to get out and try to advance his program. What he needs is for us to be operating in the strength and the resources that only he can provide to us. And consider this just for a moment before we move on. This whole episode here in Gethsemane, right, as we've watched Jesus become the primary example for us as he himself is strengthened in his spirit in such a powerful way, all of this happens when? It happens just after they leave the upper room. Now, again, I think this is significant because it was in that room during that dinner that John records that Jesus gave us the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, I'll pray the Father and he'll give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. So Jesus promises that after he was gone, that his spirit would come and indwell us and will help us. And then immediately after he makes that promise, he leaves with the disciples and goes over to Gethsemane, this place where olives are pressed and where the oil is extracted. And I think that there's such a beautiful picture that develops here. I don't think it's at all by accident because scripturally, you Bible students know that oil in the scriptures is very often a symbol of, fill in the blank, guys, the Holy Spirit. And so the picture, I think, is clear that before the Holy Spirit could be given, before that precious oil could be extracted, and before that promise could be fulfilled, someone had to be crushed and someone had to be broken, and that someone was Jesus Christ. And how precious, then, is that oil to us? And why would we waste even one single holy drop of it? Right, so our next of our more lessons from Gethsemane 
is that we have got to be moving and operating in the power of the Spirit. We've got to be allowing him to enable and to empower and to direct and to really define our lives in him. Or else he's going to be cleaning up mess after mess from us, right? So now he's got Peter's mess cleaned up. And now it's interesting because now starting in verse 48, Jesus kind of turns his attention and now he addresses the mob. It says, then Jesus answered and said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? He says, I was daily with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. He says, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. He says, really guys, swords, clubs? Look, you had every opportunity to arrest me. You saw me every day in the temple. If you had this conviction that I had to be dealt with, you didn't exercise it then. And yet now you hear you come in the dark of night to this secret place. And I think that what Jesus is doing here in his love is he's confronting them with their cowardice. Right? Their, their own conscience in what they had to know was this kind of dastardly deed that they were involved in. Absolutely, Jesus could have just let it go. He could have been arrested and just continued right on with things as they were going to go. But I think here he takes the time to try to bring conviction to their lives, trying to minister to the hearts even of his enemies over what it is that they're engaged in. And we have to wonder just how many of these very same men eventually turned to him as a result of these words that he spoke. Now, we will never know this side of heaven. But I think he confronts them with their cowardice, and then he redirects their perspective. Look, he declares to them that even all that just happened was done just as the prophets had predicted it would happen. Right, over and over, right? Psalm 41 says that he'd be betrayed. Isaiah 53, that he'd be arrested. Psalm 22 says that Jesus would be manhandled, right? Taken by force. Of course, we talked about Zechariah 13, that he would be forsaken. All of it just as it's been foretold. And here I love because Matthew includes that Jesus adds this. He says, do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he'll provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? And he says, but how could then the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? Right? If Jesus wanted to resist the mob, he would not have been limited to poor Peter's puny sword. Right? Now, a Roman legion was 6,000 men. And here Jesus is talking about 12 legions of angels. So that is 72,000 angels at his disposal. And whenever I read this particular passage, I think back to that passage in the Old Testament. It's 2 Kings 19, where one angel, it says, kills 185,000 Syrian troops in one night. So, right? How many, you know, what could an army of 72,000 angels accomplish if they'd been called to come down to the protection of Jesus? Well, I actually, you can thank me later, I did the math, right? 72,000 times 185,000, I plugged it into my phone, and this is what it told me, is that it was 1.332 little e 10, 
So I'm not even sure, you, like, you engineers write, you guys under, I'm not even sure what that means, how many people that actually is. I, I think it's 1.3 billion people. What I do know is it's way more than we're here in that garden at that moment. And you think about what's happening here. And, and again, this is kind of my sanctified imagination, but I think it's amazing to consider at this very moment up in heaven as all of the angels of heaven probably looked on and watched this scene unfolding as this multitude, this mob of men are grabbing at Jesus to arrest him, Jesus says this, there had to be 72,000 angels probably pulling their swords out of their sheath, just waiting for the next word out of Jesus' mouth, just him to speak this word into the garden and release them to come down and to bring an end to all of this. And yet no word came at least not a word to the angels. But instead, what they hear is Jesus declaring again to his disciples that it's not God's will for him to be rescued and that everything that was happening was only happening because he was allowing it to be happening. Jesus says, look, this is not out of control. I am in control. And I'm fulfilling the very words of scripture. He says, look, this scene might look out of control to you, but it is far from out of control. Everything is so under control. And in fact, it's all going perfectly according to plan. All of this is being allowed to happen in order to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures. That's what's going on here. It's not at all what you think you're seeing with your naked eye. And I think this is so important for us because Jesus knew that for all of the outward circumstances and for even this pain of this terrible betrayal by a dear friend, for all the messiness of everything that was happening, Jesus had this confidence in the big picture that what was happening, right, and that God's word would still have the final say in this situation. That God would work all of this together for good. And now, of course, the question for each of us is whether or not we will believe that about our specific circumstances, right? About our betrayal or about our pain or about the messiness of our situation. Can we really, as Jesus did, rest in the promises of the Word of God? To really truly believe that your situation is under God's control and that he is going to make sure that his word and not some Judas, but he is going to make sure that his word will always have the final say in your situation and that he is big enough to even work together for good whatever is threatening to overtake your life. And, you know, sometimes I think that we can think, you know, God has so many resources I understand that. God has so many resources that he could use to make this wrong right in my life. And why doesn't he do it? right? Or why hasn't he done it? Well, the, the truth is, so often he doesn't for one reason alone. And that is that what he is up to and, and what God is ultimately working towards and what he's working out is so much bigger and so far superior to our plan 
but it's just going to take some time for us to start to see that. And the question for us is, will we give him that time? Right? And while we do, just to rest in the knowledge that if God can overwhelm even the betrayal of Judas against the Son of God, if he can overwhelm all these religious leaders and their forces assembled here in the garden, if he can, if he can overwhelm the agony of the entirety of the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane, if he can take all of that and work it together to serve his purposes, then he really is able to do that very same thing in your life. And then we can really start believing that our situation, that nothing is out of control, but that it's going to happen according to the word of God, the plan of God, the promises of God, and the purpose of God. It's such an important lesson for us from the life of Jesus. So I don't think it is at all by accident or by coincidence. Again, these are the very last recorded words of Jesus to his disciples before the cross when he says, how then could the scriptures be fulfilled? And we read next in verse 50 that they were fulfilled. It says, then they all forsook him and fled. I sure hope that wasn't a surprise to anybody, right? Every one of his disciples, these very same guys who earlier that night as they had just walked over to the garden, they had promised to a man that they would stand by Jesus and die for Jesus, and now they deserted Jesus, every one of them, fleeing from the garden just as the scriptures promised they would. And not only these 11 disciples, but then Mark adds these last couple strange verses for us and I think they just kind of punctuate the point. It says in verse 51 that now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Okay. So, these two verses, this kind of strange little section, is only included in Mark's account. Right? Mark who usually we've seen has this incredible economy with words in his writing, right? We've seen him skip over entire sections of the teaching of Jesus. We've seen him really streamline the descriptions of the miracles of Jesus just in order to keep things kind of clipping along, right? And suddenly here, he takes the time to include this random couple of verses about this naked young man losing his linen cloth as he too flees from the garden. So why in the world does Mark include this? Well, since the earliest days of the church, many believe that this was Mark's way of saying, I was there. Without actually saying that he was there. Right? But that Mark himself was this young naked guy. And of course, as we kind of connect the dots all of the puzzle pieces seem to fit together. Again, we talked about the fact that many people assume that the upper room where Jesus had his last supper just a few hours earlier was in the house owned by Mark's family. It tells us in the book of Acts that the disciples used to meet regularly at the home of Mark's mother. And it may be that this arresting army led by Judas would have probably first gone to Mark's home 
because that's exactly where Judas just left Jesus when he walked out of the supper a few hours earlier. But when Judas and the mob come to the house and they find Jesus gone, it would have, again, been pretty easy for Judas to assume that they probably went over to Gethsemane because Luke tells us that they were accustomed to going there for prayer. And so as Judas and this multitude mob probably left Mark's house, right, we're talking early in the morning, 4 a.m., started heading over to Gethsemane, we can only imagine that young Mark tucked up in his bed, was probably woken up by all the noise, grabbed this blanket around him, and set off to run and beat Judas and his gang over to Gethsemane so that he could warn Jesus. And yet even he now, this brave young man, with the best of intentions and all of the courage that he could muster, even he also forsakes Jesus and flees for his life. And I like the way one author put it. He said, probably this picturesque incident is added to show just how completely Jesus was forsaken in the hours of his peril and pain. He surely knew what it was to suffer alone. So as we come finally to the end of the, this incredible account of Gethsemane, of course we see that the emphasis of the whole story is the faithfulness of Jesus, which stands in such contrast, right, to the failure of his disciples, right? His faithfulness only highlights their failures, right? Where, where their sin abounded, his grace abounded just that much more. Here they are, they're seeing themselves as strong, and they're not praying, and they're lashing out with swords and the energy of the flesh, on the other hand, we see Jesus strengthened in the power of the Spirit. So in as nice a way as we can say it, the behavior of the disciples here was pretty disastrous. Right? In, in the book of James, it says that a, a doubting person, person or a faithless person, it says that the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Now I can think of a million ways I would rather have my life described than like a wave that's driven and tossed and floundering at the mercy of the elements. And yet that was these guys. Right? And a couple weeks back we talked about, you know, their failure was that they didn't see themselves clearly, that they weren't dependent upon God, that they kind of had this overinflated self-confidence of themselves. And absolutely that's a pitfall that we can all fall into. And yet, I think there's another problem. I think there is a bigger problem, kind of a more systemic issue that leads to the failure here of the disciples. And that is that they still did not understand the upside down nature of the kingdom of God. So our final more lesson from Gethsemane Gethsemane is that we need to recognize the upside-downness of Jesus' kingdom. And yes, upside-downness is a word, at least it's a word this morning, because there it is on the screen. Right? Here comes Judas into the garden with this mob and the soldiers, and they're, you know, they're about to actually arrest Jesus, and it's Peter who pulls out the sword, and we have this lesson, and we have a laugh kind of at Peter's expense. But understand, Peter's attitude was the attitude of the entire group. Because if you look in Luke 22, 
in his account, just at the end of the Last Supper, Jesus has to step in and solve another one of these disputes that the disciples love to get in about who would actually be the greatest. The Last Supper is over. They're headed for the garden, and the disciples are arguing about who would be the greatest. And then Luke tells us that they started to debate about how many swords they had to bring with them that night. So here's Jesus. Even though he could have called down thousands of angels with swords of fire, instead he absolutely submitted to this crazy mob, and yet the disciples had no understanding of the true nature of the actual war that Jesus was waging. You know, when, when they got there and saw swords and clubs in the hands of the mob, they thought they could win in Jesus' kingdom using swords of their own, but this is not the way of Christ's kingdom at all, at least not right now. The Bible does tell us that one day Jesus will take the world by force. Right, that time when his internal kingdom is finally externally expressed. In Revelation chapter 2, it says that he shall rule them with a rod of iron and they shall be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel. And yet right now, the kingdom of God is of an absolutely upside down nature. Right, of course, the sword is necessary for government and for authorities as they combat wickedness but that's not the way to expand the kingdom of Christ not politically not personally instead what the Bible teaches us is that the victory instead comes to those who are humble and to those who are meek and comes to the mourner right we so often think that the battle is external in nature right we think that political force somehow can expand God's kingdom we think that Power in numbers or power in policy is what's going to grant us the victory. But the kingdom of Jesus doesn't spread that way, not at all. It's not advanced by our strength, but it's advanced through our meekness and our dependence upon the Lord as we lay down our life for those around us. And I know that that sounds counterintuitive, and yet just do any reading of church history. And what it will very quickly confirm is that the periods of greatest power for the church have also led to the periods of greatest decay in the church. All of these disciples at this point still couldn't grasp this kind of kingdom dynamic. And yet we see Jesus for all the failures of these disciples. He excelled where they failed. Right? He was the shepherd that was going to be struck so that all of the sheep could be scattered to safety. Of course, Jesus understood and he models for us this absolute upside-down nature of the kingdom that he's about to establish through the cross. So he didn't need to fight the powers that be on this day. And it's this very same Jesus that's going to restore so graciously, he's going to restore each one of these disciples even after they failed him this night. Because what do we see? We see that every one of these men one day, outside of Judas, of course, but every one of these men is going to eventually become these, these wonderful elite kind of warriors 
for Christ's kingdom because they're finally going to start to see themselves correctly and they're going to start to pray and they're going to start to fight for the kingdom and they're going to start to use these entirely different invisible spiritual weapons but it's not going to happen before they're restored by Jesus. And it's that very same restoration that Jesus wants each and every one of us to know and to experience. Right? As he wants to be the one that restores us and strengthens us and enables us really to live now as citizens of this upside-down kingdom. And he's calling us to live this kind of an upside-down life. Right? This life that where we're victorious through our weakness and where we succeed through our brokenness and where the kingdom advances because of our gentleness and because of our love and where all of these circumstances and these situations are worked together for our good and for God's glory, not by the power or the resources that we can muster, but by the Spirit of God. As the Spirit of God works through the Word of God to produce the will of God in our lives and the lives of those around us. It is an entirely different kind of life. In an entirely different kind of kingdom. With an entirely different kind of king. And this morning, we're going to celebrate exactly this very truth as we do these baptisms. Right? Because baptism itself is a beautiful picture of us dying to that old life, right? That old life that's dominated and directed by the flesh. We die to that life and then we're raised, right? We come out of the water and we're raised to new life. We're raised to a life now that's empowered and that's enabled by the Spirit. And that's what we celebrate when we celebrate baptism. So, Kissy's going to start to minister right out there. We're going to open the doors. Everybody can head right out there, gather around. Don't go to your cars. We're not dismissed yet. Let's be there and let's support and let's celebrate uh, these individuals who want to make this public um, proclamation. So let's pray and then we'll, we'll worship as we head out. So, Father, we thank you, Lord for today and we thank you for your word and we thank you for baptism Lord and we thank you for this opportunity that we have to make this public declaration Lord this statement of this work that you've done in each one of our hearts and so we pray that you would bless this time now Lord pray that it would be a blessing for those who are being baptized Lord but equally a great encouragement for those of us who are standing alongside them and praying for them Lord and, and coming to support them. And so we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. So go ahead and head right out toward the music and uh, let's do some baptisms.